This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. To begin with today, it's the Mayor's Town Hall. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill, and a uh, great weekend this weekend. Lots of stuff going on, lots of festivals, lots of uh, fundraisers. Actually, a great, uh, great time on the... Uh, the high level bridge uh, raising about five hundred thousand dollars for uh, the eco park. Uh, really, a great, uh, unique event. It was quite a turnout, from what I understand. It, it was an all day thing. It was an all day, dinner. and uh, the dinner was uh, was one element of it. That started at about seven o'clock, but uh, right through the entire day, they had the uh, the, the road cut off, uh, closed, and people were up there. Some some four or five thousand folks uh, came up to. Uh, to visit, uh, they had some uh, booths set up, some displays about Eco Park. Uh, you could get your picture taken in one of the one of the notches in the uh, high level bridge, uh, uh, you know, monument standards. Uh, it was really quite a unique uh, unique event. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm sure it's, it'll probably be repeated. I was going to say, is that's going to be the first annual? Well, maybe. Uh, you know, I mean, the organizers, God bless the, the Birmingham family. I mean, they uh, they came up with this idea, all geared towards raising funds for the eco park, which is the uh, the escarpment to the bay, uh, you know, natural area that they're. Uh, what we're putting together collectively between the RBG and uh, the Conservation Authority in the City of Hamilton. Uh, that's coming along very nicely, but uh, it, it requires funds to acquire some of these properties, and we're $500,000 uh, further along, so that's a good thing. Uh, we'll get into that in festivals and a whole lot more. Usually we're starting off with some major controversial issue, and I'm sure we'll find a few of those as we go through the program today. But it looks like the Stelco issue has been resolved. Yeah, and I think uh, it's moving along. I think at a you know a nice uh, a nice pace, and uh, you know the uh, the unions have uh, approved the, the the arrangement, which is great. Uh, I you know I, I unfortunately it's not perfect. Uh, you know the, the best deals we are knew always it when everyone. Gonna, what's that? We knew it was never going to be perfect. No, and uh, but you know what we've got now a steel operator in place, and they're uh, prepared to uh, to actually continue making steel over the long term, which is a uh, great great news for both here in Hamilton and in Nanticoke. Uh, the unions are, uh, you know, happy that they've got their employees secured, and that's a, that's a positive step. Uh, they've made some significant gains on the uh, the pension and benefits uh, side, so there's more work to do. And one of the issues that the city's currently looking at is uh, how do we uh, make sure that this is a fulsome and uh, well-thought-out strategic city-building project. And, uh, you know, those 500 additional lands over and above steelmaking is where we're going to put our uh, all of our attention and focus from, uh, from here on in. We'll take the... Uh, Minister Seuss says at his word that they're prepared to sit down and talk to us about how we can uh, take the lead on this and make this a great opportunity for us to create more employment in our city and bring those lands back into some useful purpose. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about that because you were pretty vocal about this when the province announced their support for this and their attention, uh, and they set up the land bank and all this sort of stuff. They talked about it in the hypothetical. Now it's that much closer to reality since uh, the unions are on side and uh, the courts have ruled that the bedrock deal is is a go at this stage. Mm -hmm. But you had expressed some concern, first of all, about the time frame, and second of all, how much input the city was going to have into this. Have you had talks with the minister about that? Yes. Because uh, I know they've kind of given us an extension here. Right. Uh, they, they've, they've actually sort of said that the time time limit isn't there anymore it's uh they've, they've got a 10-year window on the opebs on the on the benefits side but uh, in terms of the land arrangement uh, it's a, it's going to be a longer term which is exactly what we need to have happen <clears throat> and then uh, you know i think it uh, we ought to get uh, some some measure of control over those lands so that we can do the proper city building planning that uh that it requires. And, you know, we want to do it in partnership. So council uh, the other day uh, passed the motion I put forward that we go out and seek private sector partners and public sector partners to uh, come together and come up with a long-term strategy and how to, how to maximize the value of those lands, not only for the pensioners, but for the city and for future employment. So, you know, one of the natural partners would be uh, the Port Authority. Uh, you know, not, not that we want the Port Authority to, uh, to manage and control all of those lands, but I think they're inherently uh, uh, a part of uh, the waterfront and uh, they could certainly use more available lands for their future uh, operations and I think that's a positive thing for the city as well as a whole range of pr public-private partnerships that can bring back new advanced manufacturing businesses, even see green space. What do you want to see there? I mean, and that's, I mean, it's good news that this is available because we've always in the last seven or eight years we're talking what if, what if, and I mean, anybody's driven along uh, Tesla Boulevard now, and, and mm -hmm. looked at those lands, saying, "Boy, what a waste!" Uh, but I mean, clearly, I mean, we, you, you need to increase the tax base. So you're looking for industry and manufacturing prospects if those are available. I know some people are still saying, "Well, that should all be green space. Just you know, let, let's just make it natural. Not going to generate a lot of revenue." 
uh, and others are su- suggesting uh, things like affordable housing. I mean, there's a real mixed bag here. Do you try to accommodate all that stuff? No, you know, I mean, uh, housing is kind of out of the picture. I mean, that uh, the the contamination levels and the, the amount of remediation you would have to do to bring it up to that standard, I think, would be uh, totally un- unreasonable and unaffordable for anyone to do. Uh, so we're looking at, uh, you know, accommodating, uh, you know, higher-end uh, commercial, higher-end uh, advanced manufacturing, uh, incorporating some green space and some prestige industrial, not unlike what you have in the industrial parks. But what we, what we want to pursue more vigorously is that we don't want to turn that whole area over into warehousing and, you know, one or two employees uh, looking after a massive warehouse. Mm-hmm. We want... We want active uh, producing uh, industries that can actually uh, employ people in the city of Hamilton. So maximizing the employment opportunities is one of the uh, strategic goals coming out of this. You know, do we have a, a I mean, the, the, the folks that we had working on this were uh, folks that were formerly involved with uh, the Toronto Waterfront, uh, the folks that do, uh, do uh, modeling for, you know, different planning and, uh, and uh, uh, investment exercises for uh, major institutions like the province of Ontario and uh, major developers like Brookfield. Uh, all of them came together working for, on behalf of the city of Hamilton that put together a vision that said, you know, we can have a mix of uses, uh, not, not, not in the residential zone, but certainly in the commercial industrial side that uh, could upgrade those lands, uh, get higher value employment happening there, and also provide some public access. And uh, that's been the mission for our waterfront uh, kind of plans you know, since 25 years now, where we've opened up a significant tracts of waterfront, we want to continue that along the water's edge as much as possible. So I think the range of uses is uh, is wide open, but uh, residential and park space, uh, you know, virtually all park space is just out of the question. Well, the way things were designed, and I guess the kind of the, uh, the, the policy that council more or less adhered to, and I'll just say this in general terms, over the last 25, 30 years anyway, has been uh, residential recreation, West Harbor, uh, that end of town that we're talking about now has to be revenue generator. Is it still that cut and dried? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, we, we, we're, we're, as you know, making our investment in Pier 8 as the, uh, the residential component. And, you know, future down the road, still in my mind and in mind of many, is the CN Yards and what's possible there. Uh, there's been some visioning on, you know, possibly moving those CN yards if there's interest to do that into these uh, industrial lands, which what I think would, would create a multimodal uh, port, truck, shipping, uh, you know, uh, it, industry kind of location. So that's an opportunity that uh, is certainly worth pursuing. But, yeah, the Western Harbor uh, is the recreational residential uh, portion of our Future and uh, and you know what the port and uh, industry is still a you know a, 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 a an anchor for for our future employment and uh, I don't think we want to wish that away. Uh, you know Arsenal Middle Defasco is not going anywhere. They're uh, solid and strong and they're uh, making steel. They're making more steel today with uh, w- with greater efficiency and improved uh, air quality and improved environmental. Uh, U.S. Steel has done the same, and uh, we anticipate that Bedrick will take that to the next level. But are there ancillary industries that could come as a result of that? We think so. The port uh, claims they have uh, you know, a list of 80 businesses that are ready to go on, uh, on, on available lands should they be available. And so we'll, uh, we'll come together and look at those opportunities and see what we can maximize. Are you concerned uh, with, I mean, the good news here is that, you know, Bedrock has been given the thumbs up and, and let's move forward. We get that. But this is the second time we've done this. Mm-hmm. And, and and let's, you know, not go into this with rose-colored glasses. Uh, Bedrock is not a steel company. You know, they're an investment firm. They, they basically like to buy things, flip them for a profit and, and move on. Are we going to go down this road again in two or three years? Well, I certainly hope not, and uh, you know, certainly that's the, uh, the the presentations that Bedrock made was long-term uh, steel making. That's what they're interested in doing. They see viability in both uh, Nanticoke and Hamilton as uh, steel making operations. <clears throat> there are you know potential partnerships that that have already happened. I think with ArcelorMittal DeFasco in terms of providing providing coke, uh, which is a, you know a part of what uh, the Hamilton production is uh, very good at right now. So the, I, I, I see it as a longer-term project. I, you know, you, you can only surmise what, what's in the minds of the, uh, the investors. I mean, people don't invest this kind of money for, to break down this industry. And uh, the province of Ontario has uh, put a significant uh, backstopping on the environmental uh, uh, issues there for, for this particular company to the tune of about $66 million. So everyone's got some, uh, some uh, stake in the game. Um, I would think that uh, this is a, this ought to be and should be a longer-term play, and uh, certainly Bedrock is a significant part of that. 
I have some confidence that they're here for the long term. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Your questions, your calls for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Let's go to the phones right now. Uh, we'll get the mayor all hooked up here and uh, wired up to, for sound. And uh, go to your phone calls at 645-3221 and start 9900. Joe, thank you for holding on. How are you this morning? Very well, Bill. Thank you very much for taking my call. And good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning, Joe. Uh, my question and, and my concerns is with regarding um, adult uh, um, sports facilities. Over the course of the years, uh, starting with Geraldine Cops down at uh, Globe Park, and when they started to move a lot of these diamonds and, and parks to uh, youth, um, they built uh, uh, Turner Park. And mm-hmm. now at this time, Turner Park is full with um, um, the expansion of uh, coming in with an indigenous group coming in, which I support, and NSA Canada helping out with putting the fencing up there for the outfield diamonds. And the growth um, from uh, uh, from the time is is, is expanding uh, in the city with all the things that you just said that I'm supporting, and with the wastewater treatment plant that just clo- that closed uh, Globe Park mm-hmm. and moved us up there. Um, we've maxed out all our diamonds for adult diamonds in the center of the uh, mountain. Now I'm talking to Councillor Skelly about, um, and hopefully I can get your support with uh, up around Turner Park with the uh, cemetery uh, group up there that has that open field that I don't think it's going to be used for the next 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. Additional diamonds could be built up there for yeah. the Center Mountain. Now, the city, you know, I'm in support of the LRT, you know, this, this going down the center of the city, but I don't see any quality of life for the rest of the city, residents of the city of Hamilton. Um, our group has over 1,000 people that play in our, in our organization, but I'm not seeing any growth when it comes to a uh, sports facility um, on the Center Mountain. Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully we can get your support to get more diamond time up there. Park is full. Yep. Uh, Olympic Park has gone to, to youth. Uh, uh, same with um, uh, Gage Park went to youth, Montgomery Park, mm-hmm. uh, Woodland Park. All these parks have gone to youth, but they're in the course of the years, since now that uh, Turner Park is, is, is full, is there anything that's in your project or anything in the future for more diamonds up at the city of especially in the center mountain yeah, okay yeah. we got about a minute left joe so i'm going to let the mayor respond okay thanks for your uh, thanks for your comment joe i mean uh, it's always a challenge to to meet the demands and out there and the uh, demands change from uh, you know seemingly from year to year in terms of uh, whether it's baseball or hockey or all the facilities that we uh, we deal with we're seeing now that there's a significant decline in hockey so you know we're kind of ra- trying to rationalize our our uh, you know arena facilities but Given given the comments you've made, uh, you know if there's a demand, and uh, you know we uh, we certainly want to meet that demand. And uh, Turner Park was actually put in place to uh, make sure that uh, old timers or adult baseball would be accommodated somewhere, and rather than having to take up uh, youth space, they would have their own space to play. And uh, it's turned out rather well, I think. Uh, we're actually investing in some more bathrooms up there um, with some federal money uh, in the in this this construction season, which is I think helpful for. Uh, a lot of the players. So if we can find a way of uh, providing some additional space, even on a, on a temporary basis, like, like you suggest, uh, you know, some of the cemetery fields might be uh, on a temporary basis uh, useful. I think that's uh, something we should look at. So first I've heard of it, uh, Joe, and uh, I'll certainly take that back and, uh, you know, f- support any consideration to, uh, to provide uh, more services that uh, will meet those demands. Appreciate your call. It's a moving target, though, isn't it? I mean, oh, yeah. you know, even as Joe referenced, a number of the parks he's talked to, which are used for youth programs, uh, 25 years ago were baseball. Now they're soccer pitches. And yeah. Because baseball enrollment went down, and you can't build enough soccer pitches in this town. We can't, we can't keep up with the demand for uh, soccer pitches. And, you know, sometimes it's just difficult to find them. There aren't that many uh, open spaces. We can find them in uh, new subdivisions, and, uh, you know, a lot of that is happening. We've got a great... Uh, soccer pitch and field that we accommodated some more space on. We purchased a, a building on Highway 8, so out in the Fruitland Road area. There's a great soccer facility out there. We uh, are consistently trying to keep up with the demand, but not try to outstrip the demand. And uh, so, you know what, you, you, can, you can only afford to have so many arenas. And uh, if you, uh, if you uh, misjudge the demand and uh, you're sitting there with empty arenas, that's probably not a good way, use of uh, taxpayers' dollars. So it's always a juggle, and uh, we'll continue to juggle, I'm sure, into the future. Anyway, and we'll uh, make sure that there's always room for the, uh, the old-timers, too. Always. Uh, which is... Yeah, you and I, yes, yeah, that's right. right. Well, I, ca- I called it brace, Braceville. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, you know what, a lot of 80-year-olds, 90 which is delightful to see. They're up there, they're doing slow pitch, and they're just, they just keep on going. I think it's fantastic. I'm sure they're the ones that would be most delighted to see some extra bathroom facilities up there. 
You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This is the Mayor's Town Hall from uh, now till uh, 10 o'clock this morning. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio. Back to your phone calls. Andrew, thank you for holding on through the break. How are you this morning? Not bad. How are you doing, Bill? Great, thank you. Uh, go ahead for the mayor. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. How Good are morning, you, Andrew. How are you? Not bad. Good. Um, but the reason why for my call is uh, the topic of voter turnout. Mm-hmm. Do either of you gentlemen remember a time when we had more than 50% voter turnout? Municipally? Yes. Uh, no, no, I don't know. Okay, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. I would like you, Mr. Mayor, to put this by council to get their approval. But if you vote when you arrive at the polling place, for those of people out there who refuse to vote, the process is quite simple. You go in, give them your name, they cross off your name from the enumeration list, and they give you a ballot, you go and vote. Right. If you don't vote, your name is not crossed off. So therefore, it's easy to figure out what kind of a percentage of voting turnout we got. Mm-hmm. Here's an idea. If you can prove that you voted in the 2018 election, but you did not vote in the previous election, Hamilton City Council will give you 10% off of your property taxes for being a new voter. Hmm. Just put that one by council. See if they're willing to say 10% off the property taxes for any voter who turns out for the 2018 election who can show that they did not turn out for the previous election. Okay. It's a Thank thought. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for the idea. We'll uh, we'll pass that along. What about somebody like me and, and my wife, Rebecca? We vote in every election. I want to be rewarded too, Mr. Mayor. What are you going to do for me? Well, you know, that's that's the area you get into, of course, right? So for folks that are there all the time, uh, you know, certainly they deserve some accolades for, uh, for stepping up and performing their civic duty and... Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a difficult thing. You know, I, I you know at, at times we get into the argument of uh, should it be mandatory for people to vote? And I think in uh, you know places like Australia it is, and I, I I think there's merit to that. But then you know you get into the, you know you ha- people have rights, and uh, you know bill bill of bill of rights says that you are free to do as you please. So if you choose not to vote, that's a that's kind of a protest vote all all by itself. I would like to have more people vote. I spend a lot of times in the schools, and uh, you know what? I, I think we, we change people's minds or, or, or kids' minds first, uh, and, and when they feel that, that sense of obligation and responsibility to vote all through their lives, then uh, that, uh, that's, that improves our voting pattern. So I go to elementary schools a lot, talk about uh, the importance of voting and uh, the importance of our, their municipal government, how important it is for their daily lives. And they, it really resonates with them. So uh, I hope that that kind of effort will start to uh, get our voting turnout uh, to go higher. It, it can be a slippery slope, and I understand Andrew's uh, intentions, and they're good intentions, clearly, mm-hmm. to try to increase the, the voter turnout. But uh, And I know there are some jurisdictions. I think in Australia, actually, there is a reward. They don't actually give you money, but I think it's like a, a $50 credit on your property taxes. Right. Or uh, Others, of course, fine you if you don't vote. Because, it, as, as he's mentioned, I mean, it's easy to tell who's voted and who hasn't because yep. uh, you get your name crossed off the list. For those of you that haven't done it for years, they still do it that way. But to actually offer rewards or penalties, I, I, I think you're right. I think you'd get a court challenge on that pretty quickly. Especially his idea about a ten percent reduction. I mean, hell, in Ancaster, that's thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, that's not so, a ten dollars. Not a bad idea now. Ten dollars, I might go with ten uh, percent. That's a that's a significant number, and that, that that's a little too risky, I think. But anyway, it's 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 a discussion that we need to have, obviously. Yep. And uh, you know, they kind of talked about voter reform for about an hour and a half on Parliament Hill just after the last election, and that didn't go anywhere. But uh, we do have the option, as you know. Uh, here in the municipality uh, to change the way we vote. Uh, you know, the, the province has said, hey, if you guys want to go to a ranked balloting system, knock yourselves out. I think London, Ontario is the only municipality in the province that took them up on that. Yeah, and uh, you know what? I mean, it's a significant change in terms of how people get elected, and uh, certainly this council wasn't uh, wasn't supportive of that, uh, at, le- at least at this point. I think I think that kind of approach is starting to take hold, though. I think it's part of the kind of conversation, and you don't, you don't turn, turn your... You know, 150-year voting pattern around in uh, in in a, in a space of uh, two or three years. So, I would say the conversation is going to continue. I think there are better ways to elect people that are more representative of the the population at large. And uh, this first past the post idea is probably uh, you know something we should start considering to kind of reform and uh, and 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 give people when they do vote some credit so so they can see, sense that what the vote that they've uh, that they've made has had some impact and i think that's part of the problem here that it's a it's a it's a winner 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 lose scenario winner take all scenario 
uh, unless it's a minority situation, and that happens once in a while, but it's certainly not common common practice. So I think there's good reason to have a look at uh, putting value in people's votes. But uh, the other side of that is I don't know that we know enough about these other systems or trust these systems. Uh, the uh, the conservative uh, leadership yeah. convention just a few weeks ago, of course, uh, used a, a form of rank balloting uh, to elect Andrew Shearer as their leader. And look at all the and that, and that was only the one situation. And this this is it was a rather complicated system, and I think a lot of people didn't get it or didn't want to play into the system. And there was a, some mini controversy about that. And plus the fact that every time that we've gone to the to the referendum uh, method and, and asked voters. Uh, do you guys want to change? Nobody wants to. Uh, BC turned it down. Ontario's turned it down. Uh, like you say, London is the only jurisdiction in Ontario that decided to do this too. I know it works in other parts of the world, yeah. other, in, in other cities, as a matter of fact. But I'm not so sure they're ready. There's an appetite for it here, and I'm sure we'll all be looking at London uh, in the next election as a kind of a test case to see, uh, you know, how that plays out and what impact it has. I mean, the uh, the Conservative leadership uh, race was a. An example of a vote, a change in terms of how they calculate uh, support for their uh, individual uh, leadership candidates, and boy, was it a, was it a close vote, and it still led to a fair bit of dissatisfaction. I mean, you know, fifty-one forty-nine split on uh, on two candidates uh, is hardly a solid mandate for any leader to go to their party with in terms of uh, you know building a. Uh, you know the conservative brand, so I would say it's uh, it, you know every voting system has its down, down, uh, has its uh, drawbacks, and uh, the current one we have has it as well. And uh, you know I'm sure every every approach that we take oh, will always have something that uh, is negative about it. Because there can be variations on this too, and I, I don't want to spend the rest of the time talking about voter reform because I don't think it's going to happen. But uh, but it is rather strange. Actually, when you got into civic politics, uh, it was, I guess it was kind of a former rank balloting because we elected two councillors per ward. So you had a first and second choice as a voter there. Yeah, essentially, and uh, you know that's long gone, as you know. But uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, it didn't didn't uh, give credit to the third, fourth, and fifth candidate, though. And that's that's really the argument here is that uh, you know when when you're when you're voting, uh, you know you want to see that your vote has had some impact, and you might have uh, you know one of your choices might have been uh, you know part of uh, the the success that's uh, that's going to happen. So we'll we'll see how this all plays out. I think London, I think, will be an interesting test case. Uh, speaking of, as we go back to the phones here with uh, the Mayor's Town Hall, the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Since Andrew brought up the idea, uh, let me bring Sophie into the discussion uh, with her question or comment. You wanted to talk about voter reform, didn't you, Sophie? Um, well, yes. I, I do agree that we need reform um, because I do feel a lot of people are feeling disenfranchised, and that's why they're not voting, because they feel that their voices aren't representative of what is is going on when mm-hmm. you do have the first-past-the-post system. That being said, I would just like to make a comment also about sure. the pre- previous caller um, who was saying that he thinks that, you know, people should get 10% off their taxes if they go vote for the first time. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. The reason being is we really, really take our um, privilege, I guess, to make our voices heard for granted. It is up to us if we want to do, to make changes, that we go and make the changes because we live in a country where you can actually do that. You know, you, I mean, you're not going to be successful. I'm not saying, you know, 100% of the time, but we have the, the opportunity to make our voices heard. It's not something that you can attach a monetary amount to. And I think um, if people want to get engaged, they have to start getting engaged. It's not about getting ten- your uh, uh, house tax bill. Right. Yeah. So uh, absolutely true. And, uh, you know, that's why I spend a fair bit of time talking to the youth and, uh, you know, young children in our in our community about the importance of voting and what does it mean to them. And, you know, in fact, a lot of them, uh, a lot of the teachers are actually engaging them in understanding their uh, civic, municipal, provincial, and federal uh uh, levels of government and uh, what it means to them, and uh, they, 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 you know, they're very engaged. So I, I think that's the that's the path to you know future voter responsibility. I think that starts when they're young, and it uh, it grows and uh, and with them as they uh, become adults and are ready to vote. So uh, there's many things that we need to do, but uh, this is certainly one that uh, that I, as in, in in my capacity, is are, are putting a, a pretty uh, pretty fine focus on. Yeah, and and your point, Sophie, is well taken about uh, getting engaged in this process too. 
if we were to adopt even a, a ranked balloting system, I and mean, if you're going to have to rank six or seven candidates, you should know something about them. Uh, oftentimes people maybe know one or they do it by name recognition. I mean, we as as citizens, I think, should be doing a lot more to get involved in the election instead of just showing up on voting day. That's a, a big part of it, but do your homework before that. Well, let me add, though, that, uh, you know, I, I see more civic engagement between elections than we've ever seen before. So neighborhood associations, uh, uh, you know, municipal engagement in terms of issues that we get get out into the broader community on. There is more engagement now on a, on a day-to-day basis than I've ever seen in the last 20 or 30 30 years. And that, that's a positive thing. And even though that may not translate into kind of voting practices, uh, you want people to be engaged, uh, not just on election day, but uh, but all the time in between. And I think that's, uh, that's something also that we should con- con- continue to work on. And Civic engagement is very high on the on, on the priority list in terms of uh, how our government's going to proceed and deal with the issues that we need to deal with. And bringing people in and getting their input in, uh, ahead of time is uh, much more beneficial than asking them on, a, on a, an election day, you know, did you think it was a good idea to do X, Y, or Z? Uh, I'm not fond of referendums, as you well know, because it's just a, a limited amount of information that you share with people, and they just kind of vote on a, uh, on a popularity basis. Um, so, you know what, uh, g- engagement uh, between elections is probably more important than uh, the, the actual voting thing. Back to your phone calls for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. And Todd, you're next on the program. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you, sir. Um, you're a great show. And Thank you. And whenever you have the mayor on, it's an even better show. <laughs> Thanks. Anyways, uh, yeah, a couple of, couple of things that I was listening to, like the um, engagement thing, I truly like the idea that you know they come knocking on the door but you know like advertising okay when there's an election coming up maybe you know when the candidates go around they could drop leaflets and things right up to the day of election Mm -hmm. at some of the places that are engaged like schools and that's because you know even the students might say i met a counselor so-and-so at my school and i think he's a good guy dad Mm -hmm. You know, yep. that sort of thing. Like you were saying, you're engaging more of the youth that way as well. Right. And uh, I appreciate that, too. And also, thank you for the pump track in uh, Age Park for yeah. the young men. They uh, they seem to leave the, the amphitheater alone now with their skateboards and bicycles. You know, like, their safety, too, right? Yep. And playing in the amphitheater with the bikes wasn't a great idea in the pump track work for that yeah no it's terrific i see it uh i'm I'm there often todd and uh you know i uh i've been on it a couple of times with my bike i'm not sure it's a an authentic uh i don't have a pump track bike which is a bmx version of it but uh it's a fun thing to do and it uh, fits rather well down down next to the tennis courts and i think it puts a focus on you know engaging all parts of our community not just the you know those that uh, you know are traditionally part of the gauge park floral tennis uh, you know kind of a- ambient atmosphere so i think uh, you know bringing these parks to to uh, you know activity levels and uh, catering to all groups that are interested in participating in some sport or another i think is very helpful so gauge park is still beautiful and wonderful and uh, the fountain is looking better than ever and uh, right now, the park is so well used and so well utilized, and now has free Wi free Wi Fi uh, by virtue of uh, the good work of uh, Matthew Green and some of the uh, satellite tower funds that they've had. They've been able to uh, hook up uh, Gage Park as a free Wi Fi location, as a hotspot. So, another good reason to go visit your great Gage Park. Thanks so much for the call. Uh, on uh, Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly from KC. Uh, Mr. Mayor, if we have a winter that's not as bad as thought, uh, what happens to the budget that wasn't spent? Does it get spent or does it go to next winter? Uh, it goes to next winter. Uh, so it's a, it's a reserve that's built up. And we know that uh, you know between one winter and another, there, uh, there are variances in terms of the amount of dollars that are required. And if you hit a, you know, an unusual storm, then you might even have to dip into that reserve a little deeper. So we, we, uh, we maintain an ongoing reserve. Uh, we don't throw that money into uh, you know other capital uses because uh, if uh, if next year it's uh, much more severe, then we're, we uh, we have to go look for additional money. So the reserve works well, and uh, so far the winters have been uh, one cold and one uh, one warm, and uh, all of them provide challenges. But uh, I think we're meeting those challenges each and every year. Thanks so much on Twitter. You can always reach us, of course, at CHML Bill Kelly. Back to your phone calls for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Fred, thanks for holding on. How are you this morning? Not bad, not bad. Good morning, fellas. Hi. Good morning. Uh, 
The reason I'm calling, Mayor, is to give an idea for the city council to vote. I'm a retiree of Stelco. Mm-hmm. U.S. Steel holds back money on taxes to you to the city. Right. And I was wondering, seeing that they haven't paid back the taxes, take the land, and you guys work on the land deal, and give us the money, the retirees, that we can up on our pension to keep things going, seeing that uh, U.S. Steel is back down pretty well on our pension, and seeing that you got a lot of other things working pretty good money-wise within the city. How about giving that money that you do get back from U.S. Steel, seeing that Bedrock is supposed to be by the place the end of the month, Give us uh, the money if you could have a vote on that. Okay, so uh, so a couple of complications there, Fred. I mean, it's a it's a good thought, and we've been working very hard to try and maximize the value of the uh, of the, uh, the the available lands that we would have some interest in. And of course, uh, Bedrock is going to be a tenant, so they're buying the steel making capacity, but they're not buying the land. Uh, the province of Ontario has organized this arrangement to uh, to help offset some uh, remedial uh, work that needs to be done, some environmental remedial work. And what we're hoping to do and wh- where the value is is the future use of those lands to help offset future pensions and uh, and benefits. And so we're, what we're saying is, uh, you know, consistent with what you've talked about, is that we want to maximize the value of those lands so that we can maximize the values to the pensioners and the benefits uh, that are uh, that are owing. One of the issues uh, the, on the back taxes is that they are going to pay their back taxes. Uh, it's money that we're owed, and uh, certainly we we would want to use those monies for um, uh, you know many of the things that we were committed to, like snow removal and you know roads and all the things that uh, are ongoing challenges for us. And we anticipate having that money in any event, even though. Uh, they're they're getting reassessed, uh, you know, pretty significantly, and that's one of our challenges right now. Is that, that reassessment is actually causing us uh, to to lose tax dollars on a year to year basis. So, get, having said all of that, there isn't a pocket of money that we can then hand over uh, to uh, pensioners, but there are plans in place to increase the value of those lands that would then turn into value for pensioners and benefits. So, but this is going to take time, and that's, it's that's going to take time. Back to the conversation that you and I started the the program with today, is is just what's going to happen, who's going to be a participant in that, and how quickly the money starts flowing from that. Yeah, and it's uh, I mean it's not going to be immediate, and I as I understand it, uh, the union has uh, you know had a, a plan in place to on the short term uh, try and keep everyone as whole as humanly possible. My understanding is the pensions are whole. Uh, it's the benefits that are uh, that are a challenge right now, and uh, they have on the short term the ability to to keep it. Uh, I think seventy or eighty percent funded, and then uh, you know down the road is uh, is what the challenge is in terms of keeping that going. So, uh, complicated affair, and I have to uh, I have to admit I have great empathy for the uh, the pensioners and uh, and the employees. In fact, for U.S. Steel, they've certainly have, have been put through the grinder on this thing. But I think we're coming out of this in a better place, not perfect, but better place. And uh, our our mission for the city of Hamilton and for now Bedrock and the province is to uh, to make sure that we can get maximum value out of these lands for not only future employment but also for benefits for pensioners. Thanks so much for the call, Fred, and uh, thanks to everybody who uh, took part in the program. Uh, my apologies to those that we didn't get to. Uh, if they need to reach the mayor, you can get them at City Hall at Mayor. At Hamilton.ca. Right. Sorry. And the phone number, of course. Uh, the phone number is 905-546-4200. That'll get you right into the mayor's office. Thanks so much, Mr. Mayor. Good to have you with us again. Always a pleasure. You're, you're, you're a fidget. Oh. I'm going to leave this with you. My contribution to your day, in case you get a little uh, distracted, you can always focus with your little <laughs> fidget here. In case. You're I will welcome. do that. Thanks so much, <laughs> Mr. Mayor. Thank you. Uh, mayor's bearing gifts. Beware. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, it was a wonderful weekend weather-wise uh, here in uh, the Hamilton area. And, of course, with the nice weather, people are out and about. And that's great because uh, we have so many wonderful natural things to see, including, of course, the city of Waterfalls. Hamilton, as you know, has more waterfalls within its city limits than any other city in the world. And they're a wonderful attraction Sadly, uh, there's always some concern about safety when uh, people go to these sites, uh, to the waterfall sites. And uh, tragedy reared its ugly head once again this weekend. A young man died after falling, about 40 meters, we're told. Uh, There were other incidents as well. And uh, Susan Claremont wrote about it in The Spectator today, by the way. It's a a thought-provoking piece uh, called Deadly Plunge at Albion Falls. Tragic, but not surprising. 
and uh, she outlined exactly uh, some of the pictures that uh, have been posted on social media of people that are climbing the falls, scaling the falls, right beside where the water's flowing, some of them where the water is flowing, etc., and clearly putting themselves in harm's way. Yet, there they are. And, you know, is this the, the age of the selfie that's causing this stuff? Is it just wanton disregard for public safety? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. And our, and our condolences, obviously, to the family and friends of the uh, the person who died on the weekend at Albion Falls. But you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? It uh, It is raising questions, of course. Uh, emergency service, in this case, have, fire, have to respond to these things as they're happening. And that takes time and resources to do. And we have to question exactly what's going on and what can we do to prevent this. And it's a, it's a debate that has to happen. That's all there is to it. Dave Forrester is uh, with Mountain Safety uh, Officer, the Fire Safety Officer with Hamilton Fire Department. Uh, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us their perspective on this. Now, Dave, first and foremost, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. No, our pleasure to come online this morning. I, I wish it was under better circumstances, obviously, but this is a this is a growing problem, and 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 I know yours is not to set policy; yours is to respond to it. But it's got to be frustrating for the crews uh, to to be go- doing this time and time again. I understand the job is is there, and that's part of it. But uh, you know, you, you always in, in Hamilton Fire Dave preach uh, safety and 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 being conscientious about this at the same time. Absolutely, and that's uh, that's part of the message that we were trying to get out through the weekend. Uh, I actually attended uh, Albion Falls yesterday afternoon, and and it was uh, it's quite surprising to see the number of people that uh, were out using the falls and and viewing the park, and and it was great, a beautiful day for it. Um, but you know, some people were making some choices that may not have been the smartest in terms of how they're getting down to those areas to view. Well, and again, I'm not going to appoint accusing fingers at anybody. I just because you know, but I saw the pictures that the spectator had today that they pulled off social media of people clearly doing things that are dangerous at the same time. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, "Hey, I want to go view the falls." I mean, thousands and thousands of people do that every year, of course. But but you get into situations like this where you're sitting on uh, at the edge of a precipice that's about 40 meters high, as as some people were actually photographed. You, you got to wonder what's going through their heads. Uh, there, I'm sure there's uh, there's uh, the human element to all of this, of course, and and that's uh, that's part that we really can't control. I know the city's gone to great lengths to make sure that uh, we get information out there. Uh, for example, on the city of Hamilton website, there is uh, an entire page dedicated to waterfall safety uh, in the viewing areas of these parks. So you know, it's it's not for lack of effort, um, you know, on the part of the city of Hamilton or on our part as a, as a fire service to to make sure that the community is aware. You know, if you're going to use these areas, use them responsibly. Which leads us to the next question here: is is the frequency with which this is happening right now, uh, and and the time? And and let's face it, this is not a dollars and cents issue. This is a public safety issue. But there is a cost to this, isn't there? Um, there, there's certainly always a cost to, to anything that we do, um, you know, but everything is done from the standpoint of safety. So, you know, the number of crews that respond for a rope rescue, it, it's all done in the, in the avenue of safety, whether it's safety for the crews themselves that are responding to the rescue or safety for the public that we're having to go in and, and assist to get back up to the top of the escarpment. This, it, how long would, I guess I was going to ask you how long it actually takes for one of these rescues, but I guess that would really vary depending on the circumstance, wouldn't it? certainly does. And uh, I don't think there's a, t- a time we'll allocate at all for any kind of uh, response or rescue. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's just going to be one of those things where it, the time it takes is the time it takes uh, to, to do things safely. How do we manage and how do we find a, a balance between public safety and, and public enjoyment of these facilities? Uh, clearly, you guys are responding to this on a pretty regular basis right now. Have, uh, is, is this a topic of discussion? Do you guys talk about this around the table? I, I know there are discussions going on right now at, uh, within City Council and certainly within Senior Administration. Um, they're reviewing uh, what's going on and the responses that we've had. Uh, and, and, you know, and they're taking a look at what it is that we can do and, and if there's more that we can do to ensure that the public are made aware and, and make, uh, make safe use of these properties. Have you? Uh, this is this is Hamilton's situation. Obviously, I mean, it's rather unique. Obviously, because we have an escarpment here, and uh, which uh, lends you know the, this fabulous beauty that we have in the topography that we have here. We love to take advantage of. But are there other jurisdictions that are facing similar problems that you could tap into to say, hey, what are you guys doing? Uh, I'm certain there are, and uh, and I would trust that uh, our senior administration is doing just that. They're they're looking at other areas that are 
uh, experiencing similar situations to to kind of gather all the information that we possibly can to ensure that we're doing everything that we can in our municipality to ensure the community is safe and that we're maintaining safe areas for, for viewing. Is it our imagination or is there that much of a, a spike in, in the number of uh, rope rescues that we're doing these days, Dave? I mean, as I was saying to our, our family over the weekend, I mean, you know, those waterfalls have been around a long time, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. Uh, and, and even when, I, when we were kids growing up in this area, yeah, I used to go for a hike around Albion Falls or head off to Webster Falls. And I guess every now and then there'd be a, a slip and fall or something like that. But it just seems to be ha- happening with much more frequency these days. Well, certainly, you know, with uh, with reporting and tracking and, and keeping, you know, more more detailed statistics uh, of these things, there certainly would appear to be more. But, you know, we had 25 last year. Uh, we're up to four, unfortunately, so far this year. Um, the nice weather certainly uh, encourages people to get out and be active. And uh, certainly we don't want to discourage that. And But we just want people to do it safely, you know, and be, be aware of your surroundings. Wear proper footwear if, if you're going to go off the beaten path. You know, flip-flops and sandals may not be the best choice for that. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be awfully frustrating when you see some of these pictures of people that are scaling these uh, the sides of the walls of these waterfalls and, as you say, wearing something like flip-flops or, or, or something like that or, or Crocs or whatever it is that they've got on right now. Um, there are people that do that sort of thing for recreational activity, and that's great, but uh, there are people that, first of all, know what they're doing, mm-hmm. and B, they wear the proper equipment, which is really part of the mantra that you guys always preach. Absolutely. And, you know, if it's something that you're interested in and you want to do rock climbing or wall climbing, there's certainly lots of uh, places that you can go and get trained and learn how to do it safely. And, you know, and if you're inexperienced and you've never done it before, you know, you might want to give it a second thought before you make that choice. And um, for that selfie, maybe that's not the right choice. But, uh, you know, these are beautiful areas and and uh, they're they're there for our viewing, and and you know we don't want to discourage the citizens from using them, but we want them to use them safely. Dave, thanks so much for this and uh, for the time today, and for the great work that you and your crews do on on a pretty regular basis. Uh, uh, it's sad when when tragedies like this occur, but it's uh, certainly gratifying to know that uh, that you guys are just a phone call away to be able to respond to these sorts of things and to keep us safe. Thanks for that. You're very welcome. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. There is a national coalition of anti-poverty groups that is pushing the federal government to boost the amount that it provides for child benefits. That's actually only part of the program that they're advocating for. And uh, it's, I think, a great initiative with some very forward-thinking ideas. Anita Khanna is the uh, coordinator of this, the national coordinator. It's called Campaign 2000. And uh, Anita joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Anita, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thanks so much, Bill. It's great to be here. Well, I was going to say it's very timely. It's something we probably should have been talking about 20 years ago. Uh, and, and every election, the government's talk about things like this, but they've been a little slow to come forward with some of these actions and programs, haven't they? Yes, yeah, we, we've seen some progress, uh, but it's been far too slow given the, the demand and the real impact on people's lives, with children going hungry, uh, you know, performing worse in school than they need to, and just growing up with less opportunities than their counterparts. It just makes sense to act on poverty. Well, and I guess the thing that I find most frustrating, as many others do, is that in many cases there are programs that are meant and have been in place for some time to address these sorts of problems, but oftentimes they're underfunded, and there's always a couple of catches within these programs that make it problematic for people to get ahead. That's right, yeah. And one of the things we, we reference is the need to uh, you know reexamine sort of the rules that govern these programs, you know, if they are different across the provinces, you know, where some families might have their money or their uh, child support, for example, clawed back if they're receiving social assistance. It just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. That could be money in the family's pockets in order to support uh, their children. That's children. Children have a right to child support if they're in a single parent family. So why not uh, look at the rules that are keeping people down or holding them back and find ways to coordinate them and align them so that people are, are benefiting as much as possible from what's out there. And as you say, you know, able to get ahead. Well, and this this is the thing that I think is so totally unfair about this, is these idea about clawbacks. And I, I understand why they do this. Uh, first of all, I think it's based on mythology that, you know, people are going to get rich if they just keep getting government. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't see too many people driving around in Cadillacs uh, these days that say, yeah, I'm doing it all on government checks. It's a piece of cake. What a life. 
but they just they simply say, okay, you got mm-hmm. this one. Now you qualify for this, or you another program that, that you need. But we're going to cut back the other program instead. It's like you. They, it's almost Anita like they're saying you're down, and we're going to keep you down. That's right, and I think the give with one hand, take away with the other is actually uh, you know a real trap often for people, and it makes it really hard to lift themselves out of poverty. And I mean. Uh, Ontario is making some good progress in terms of improving the minimum wage in the coming years. Uh, but, you know, overall, you know, we, we see right now that a lot of people are working but still living in poverty and their children are, are suffering as a result, you know, and that, you know, even those who are working full-time full year, you know, can end up at the food bank at the end of the month or struggling to pay their rent and moving, you know, house to house or city to city. Uh, which is really disruptive in people's lives. I mean, you know, to to free yourself from poverty, you need a decent income, but you also need stability and you need peace of mind. You know, we all seek that kind of stability that, you know, we can sort of rest easy at night, but living in poverty is really robbing people of that, and it's it's unnecessary. We have uh, the solutions, we have the research, and, you know, Canada can afford to support people. We just need to prioritize this. Well, and and look at the programs and and say you know instead of one offs, let's let's look at this holistically and say okay, how are we doing this? What mm-hmm. programs are available? And and part of that, frankly, as and you touched on it a second ago, Anita, is mm-hmm. is employment. I mean, when we talk about child mm-hmm. poverty, obviously we're talking about the 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 plight that their parents are are, are under right now, and that can change. Uh, whether it's an employment situation, I mean, people get laid off, they get downsized, whatever euphemism you want to use for it, mm-hmm. but they can find themselves and say, hey, I was working for 20 years, now I have no job, I still have a mortgage, I've got kids, what am I supposed to do in situations like this? Things like job retraining programs have to be part of an overall strategy, I think, for poverty reduction. Absolutely, yeah, and our comprehensive um, plan uh, that we released today shows that you know, it's it's many things that make a good strategy, and the goal has to be clear. You know, reducing poverty, restoring dig- dignity, and supporting people have to be the goals. Otherwise, you're going to end up with piecemeal solutions. But certainly, we talk about the need for people to be able to qualify for EI, you know, based on the precarious job world. We need changes to EI, but also we need retraining. We need affordable uh, post-secondary education. We also need more options for people in terms of uh, being able to get in that market and job market, I should say, and uh, be able to support their families. And I mean, another big piece of this is having access to uh, to unions and unionization and benefits and the rest in order to keep their families both healthy, but have some job security. Absolutely. What kind of reaction are you getting to this? Well, you know what? We are holding uh, three large uh, town hall events across Canada. We have one in Charlottetown, one in Winnipeg, uh, and one in Toronto, and they're all taking place tonight. We're going to connect everyone who's attending by Skype. We have hundreds of people who are coming out to each of the sessions in different cities who are fired up. So we certainly have a movement of people who are calling for something that will actually be the sea change that we require in order to to lift families out of poverty. So we feel really good that there's a grassroots and community level, um, uh, you know, movement around this. And we also, uh, you know, have been putting forward our recommendations to the government. And really, we feel the ball is in their court in order to create a strategy that gets to the roots of the issues and gets uh, and lifts people out of poverty and puts people in poverty first. If we're going to use a word like fairness, let's look at some numbers here. And I think we do deserve to have this. And and, and maybe one of the key elements that we can talk about here, because I know that's going to be a big topic tonight when you have your meetings, is, yeah. the, is the Canada Child Benefit. Uh, and, and, and right now the government is going to come back and initially say, well, come on, we offer these programs. You know, if you're eligible, you're going to get this and you're going to get that. And you could qualify for something else, et cetera. But the money that actually is, is going out there is not sufficient. And we saw this happen in so many other mm-hmm. circumstances right now. Uh, even people that are on ODSB here in Ontario right now, mm-hmm. the, the money, you can't pay the rent and buy groceries and, and, and do the other mm-hmm. things with the amount of money that you're given. And, and that child tax credit is a classic example of that. And, and the MPs are saying, well, it's all we can afford right now because, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck for money. Yet their pensions are indexed. Why can't they do the same thing for people that are really in need? Yeah, absolutely. We feel that um, it's it's clear that you know the government is uh, has put a lot of money into the child benefit. We think it's a it's a good program. We think there could be adjustments made so more people can benefit from it. It's got to be indexed. Uh, the government agrees with that in principle because they plan to do it. 
but right now, you know, we can't we kind of can't delay that action because people are losing ground, right? The money doesn't keep up with the cost of our expenses, right? So we uh, absolutely we are are calling for them to act more quickly. 2020 is the next, you know, it's the start of the next decade, right? And especially in children's lives, two, three years, even a year. You see the amount of change children go through in a year. Every, you know, every bit of support that families can have to support their healthy development, uh, you know, their ability to pay attention in school and to succeed. You know, we have to capitalize on every moment of that. And there's no there's really no excuse for delaying. Well, and, and let's connect the dots here because, there, you know, we've talked about some of the other concerns societally here, and we can relate mm-hmm. this to the Hamilton issue, and, and you know, we can mm-hmm. talk about education. You know, if, if the parents don't have enough money, if the kids don't uh, get breakfast, if they don't get decent meals, if they don't have proper living accommodations, they don't do well in school. And we've seen this with these test results that come out and say, well, how come this area is so low? Well, mm. here's a shocker for you. Oftentimes where those test scores are low, it's in areas where these families are challenged by some of the things that you've talked about here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So why not get to the root of these issues and and uh, and provide children with the best ladder to success? Because that's like you're talking about EQAO, I think, and that's yeah. been a huge thing with, you know, school ratings and school districts and people doing things sounds like the USA where people are sort of choosing things based on school districts. But how about actually level the playing field so all, you know, all children have the chance for success and we have, um, you know, smart social policies that will affect them. And I think this is why, you know, we've called for quality regulated early learning and child care from zero to five before children enter school and also quality after and before school programs. This is why children need, as you say, decent accommodations, uh, you know, that are in good quality so that their health is protected. And also, you know, so many other programs and opportunities that can allow them to succeed. So I think, you know, if we don't pay now for the programs that are required, we'll pay later, right? Society pays later. Well, it's a, com- a, a conversation that needs to be had, and hopefully your organization, Campaign 2000, is going to be the catalyst for this. Anita, good luck with this tonight and going forward on this, and thank you so much for this today. Thank you for having me back. It's a real pleasure. To Take care. To That's Anita Kana, of course, uh, the national coordinator for uh, Campaign 2000. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.